That Wellbeing at Work show is brought to you by Body Boost, the well-being engagement platform that employees actually use. Find out more at bodyboost.co.uk. And if we're quoting age-old adages, I would also quote um, Hertzberg, Frederick Hertzberg, who said, if you want people to do a good job, give them a good job to do. Welcome to That Wellbeing at Work show. I'm Chris Taylor, your show host. Many organisations today employ a range of benefits and initiatives neatly gathered together under the banner of well-being. All well and good, you say, but this week's expert guest argues organisations need to stop using initiatives in isolation and instead look much deeper at issues such as job design, quality of management and individual workload. To paraphrase my guests, we need to move on from the warm but soon-to-cool glow of isolated well-being initiatives to something that genuinely sticks. Stephen Bevan is Head of HR Research Development at the Institute for Employment Studies. Stephen has almost 40 years of experience in the field of HR research with highly sought-after expertise in workforce well-being, performance and productivity. Stephen has numerous publications on health at work to his name, and he was an expert witness to a review of NICE guidance on workplace mental health, which was published in March of this year. He has recently published a book with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper entitled The Healthy Workforce, Enhancing Wellbeing and Productivity in the Workers of the Future. Stephen begins the interview by unpacking some of the confusion about what wellbeing at work really means. Stephen, when we first chatted to arrange this interview, you mentioned the evangelism surrounding well-being, and it does seem that everywhere that you look, organisations are banging on about their well-being credentials. Um, I wondered if you might start by giving us a bit of a history lesson about how we've got to where we are. Yes, well, I suppose um, one of the issues that I see a lot when I talk to employers um, is that most of them are, of course, genuinely interested in making sure they go beyond their sort of legal duty of care towards their employees. You know, there's, there's sort of a legal um, precedent for that, the Health and Safety Work Act from 74. But that primarily focuses on people's sort of, you know, um, prevention of accidents and exposure to hazardous materials and so on. Yes, it was sort of written sort of term as factories, wasn't it, really? And I mean, yes, our work right. was different then. But but the concept of well-being doesn't really fit quite so neatly into that model, Um because it's sort of life and limb, um, and well-being <laughs> is slightly more um, complex than that. I mean, it, is, it can be about you know uh, people feeling fulfilled in their work at one level, um, particularly if that protects them against you know, an elevated risk of depression or anxiety, for example. Um, so I think that um, you know, employers have, have been struggling for years to try and work out what it is they can do to go beyond their health and safety duties. Um, and some of them have chosen the path of, of providing benefits for their employees. So they will offer them, you know, fruit bowls and, um, you know, the <laughs> option to eat lettuce in the canteen <laughs> and um, subsidised gym membership and uh, fun runs and um, pedometer challenges and so on. Um, and, you know, on their own, there's no harm in doing that at all. I mean, the danger, of course, is that it's only people who are um, already looking after their health or you know, being very active in terms of trying to make behavioural change, like stopping smoking or losing weight and so on, who will uh, take part in those sorts of things. Um, and actually, for the most part, there's almost no evidence at all. They make very much difference to people's health, but they do give people a sense of belonging and a sense that their employer is taking care of them and is concerned about their, their well-being. And I suppose that the real test is, 
uh, if an employer does those things, what are they measuring? Are they measuring whether people are, are healthier or they take less sickness absence or their recovery time from illness or injury is quicker? Uh, no, they don't. Almost exclusively, they don't. They measure how many people eat the lettuce or eat the fruit or go to the mm. gym. Mm. Um, so they measure take up rather than uh, the, the long term benefits. Now, there are other organizations, and unfortunately, there are far fewer of them, who are generally interested in trying to promote positive health outcomes for their employees. And, you know, they are doing things like, you know, blood glucose monitoring, health risk assessments trying to help people who've got chronic conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or fluctuating conditions like uh, multiple sclerosis to really live full and fulfilling working lives and to stay for as long as possible at work. Or they're trying to avoid people uh, in situations where their work is so intense that no matter how individually resilient people are, uh, they're always going to succumb to work pressure or work intensity. Um, And so Rather than dealing with the symptoms of the problem, which sometimes the benefits approach does, some organisations are trying to go back to the real root causes and say it's actually the way people are managed, it's the jobs that they do, the way that work is organised, that actually is going to have the most sustained impact on people's well-being at work. That's far more difficult to do, but most of the evidence is it's far more effective if you really care about health. Well, I was I was going to ask. I was going to come on to that, and actually, you you, you preempted it. But it, you know, it, you can have all the you know the well being and all the initiatives, and as you say, fruit bowls and and healthy canteens and and bean bags and ping pong and all sorts of things going on at work and and fantastic um, activities. But if you're working for a you know a horrible manager, or the organisational culture is toxic, nothing will change that unless you change the leadership, will it? Well, that's the that's the challenge. I think um, you know. I, I, perhaps the best example of that is this uh, interest that there is currently in resilience training. Mm. Um, and um, I did a piece of work uh, for a French-owned company that had operations in the UK and in France, and they were interested in why their sickness absence levels were so different in the two countries. In the UK part, they were very keen on you know, resilience training, stress management, and so on. Whereas in France, when I went to talk to their managers there, and particularly the trade unions, um, they really wouldn't countenance the idea of doing anything around resilience. Because for French workers, if you're trying to promote resilience, what you're doing is saying your stress is your own fault. And mm. we need to get you to sharpen up and to become more resilient and more strong and more able to cope with all these pressures. But we're not going to do anything about the pressure. Mm. So uh, and although it's, it's easy to get you know rather too sort of... Um, polarized about all this but you know at the end of the day people's well psychological well-being particularly is affected not just by their own character or their own um, predisposition to stress or or anxiety it's to do with the pressure that's on them either from home uh, from their finances from relationships uh, or from their work and so if you just put people through a sheep dip of Um, resilience training and say well now we've put you through this you should be able to cope with anything we throw at you uh, almost absolves the management from doing anything about it Mm -hmm. so you can send someone back after resilience training program to a toxic job or to deadlines are impossible or to a manager who's a bully um, you're going to end up back at square one Mm. no absolutely I mean so do you you think resilience training has any I mean has any place in an organization's sort of armory in terms of, of, of equipping its its employees to deal with deal with the stress of work or not? Would you say that actually it's, it, you know, it's, it's not the route to go down? What would you say? 
Um, it's a bit like many of these things. I mean, I would put things like mental health first aid in the same category. Um, you know, they overwhelmingly, as interventions, get positive feedback from people who go on them. You know, people really enjoy and find them you know, quite um, enlightening yeah. and you know, uh, empowering to, to go on the training for these sorts of things. Um, unfortunately, quite a lot of the evidence shows that the, that sort of warm glow that you get from going on them doesn't really translate sustainably into change behavior. Mm. So if you go back six months or a year later, uh, most people have forgotten what they've learned or haven't had opportunities to put it into practice. Mm. Now, I hesitate to say that they're not worth doing at all because it partly depends on what else you're doing. My worry about things like mental health first aid, for example, is that um, too many organizations use it in isolation. They think that, you know, they, they've ticked the box on stress management and mental health because they put, they've got mental health first aid trainers and so on. Um, and it does worry me that um, if that's all you're doing and not doing anything about job design or quality of management or workload, and so on, then you will end up going back to square one. So I, I, I think it's as much to do with how they're used and what other policies and practices are put in alongside them to support them. Hmm. Uh, that means that they'll either be successful or not. Okay. I mean, some organisations might say that actually they're a little bit of stress and, and, and maybe that people do say, employees say, actually, that's not good for my mental health and I'm not going to do that piece of my, you know, of that, of that job because yeah. it's not good for me. I mean, for, for, for everyone, for all of us, I mean, occasionally it's good to be uncomfortable isn't it and being pushed into doing something not pushed perhaps is the wrong word but being encouraged or taking a risk and doing something and actually do raising our stress level a little bit because actually it helps us grow as individuals yeah i think um there's a lot to that i think there's plenty of science that supports the view that um you know up to a certain point and a threshold uh, a certain amount of stress and pressure can be really positive for performance and there's quite a lot of evidence that people can work at quite high levels of intensity for quite a long time where they're feeling pressure but that's a sort of constructive pressure but the thing that makes a difference between people who thrive under those circumstances and those who fall over is the amount of control and autonomy and discretion they have in their jobs mm. um, I was speaking yesterday to someone who works in primary care in, in the NHS um, and obviously that's an incredibly pressurized environment but this person was saying that actually you know the massive amount of pressure that she was working under uh, was actually manageable because people trusted her to do her job the way she saw fit and 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 schedule things the way that worked best for her and for patients. Okay. Um, and it was a massively liberating thing for her. She was absolutely loving her job, even though she was under a lot of pressure. So in that instance, then management has got out of her way. She's able to to create her role and, and, and to, as you say, manage her own role and, 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 and prioritise the tasks that she's going to do them in the order that she would like to do them to make her feel that she's in control of that role. Is that what man, good managers do? Is they actually step out of the way of, of, the, of, of the high performers and, and, and let them do what they need to do? Pretty much. I think, um, you know, there's been lots of research over the last 40 years on high performance work practices. And mm. um, I think you know, one of the, the compelling findings that comes up time and time again is that, you know, managers who um, not just step back and trust people, but secure people resources and help them you know, achieve clarity about overall what's expected of them, but then let people have quite a lot of autonomy to decide how they go about it. Um, are the ones who are more successful and produced more sustained results and 
um, you know, in, enable people to feel well and fulfilled and satisfied in their jobs. I mean, the key thing here is that um, it's not a choice between a productive workplace and a healthy workplace. The two link together. I mean, it's massively linked. Um, some people like, like to characterize this as a as a zero sum game. I, I literally had a, a, a quote from a very senior manager in a large organization just a few months ago who said, that he felt that um, stress at work was a far better motivator for performance than any well-being <laughs> program. <laughs> and, okay. you know, he genuinely believed that. And he was arguing against all this sort of, you know, moddy coddling of um, putting people into cotton wool. And we would treat people like grown-ups and they, if they can't stand the heat, they should get out of the kitchen. That's quite an approach, isn't it? It's an approach, yes. <laughs> um, I, I was sort of thinking that might be a sort of a city financial institution, but um, you, you, you probably wouldn't be able to say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Couldn't possibly comment, okay. <laughs> if you're frustrated that not enough of your people take advantage of the well-being resources you've put in place for them, then look no further than Body Boost. Our unique body system and community features are the magic ingredients which get people to team up and form healthy habits together. And they have a lot of fun along the way too. Download case studies from our website or email us on info at bodyboost.co.uk. Is it, I was just thinking, but is well-being really new? I was, I was just looking at, you know, when you sort of go back to, to, to the Quaker family, the Cabris, um, you know, they set up at Bourneville and they built an entire sort of town or village for their Ooh. sort of chocolate factory workers. And you had parks and, and doctor surgeries and housing and, you know, sort of houses with, with, with inside bathrooms and toilets and things. I mean, it's not new, is it? Nothing's new about this, really. If you look back at, as you say, those sort of Quaker organisations that, you know, the, the, the no, Cadbury's, for example. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was very paternalistic. Yeah. Um, and there was, of course, enlightened self-interest involved because they realised that, you know, particularly if you're running a production unit, for every day you've got someone off sick, um, you're less able to be as agile and productive as you'd like to be. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's true. I mean, I think, you know, even today, if you talk to Unilever, for example, exactly. they talk very proudly about Port Sunlight yeah. and the, the work that they've done over many years, actually, on employee well-being. Um, for some, that is quite a paternalistic approach because, you know, for example, in their third world country operations, they, they do provide a lot of support for people's families and local communities and so on as well. Uh, so it's not a new concept. I think the extent to which it's become... It's either medicalized or not, um, mm. I think is interesting. You know, I think some companies you know, ask people to give quite a lot of information about their medical history and their, you know, their biometric measurements and so on, because they take a more medical approach. They're looking at risks of cardiovascular disease, for example. Um, in some countries, that would just not be acceptable because of medical confidentiality and so on. Mm. And that's a sort of ethical point about whether or not you, you go over a line asking your employees to give you their medical data, for example. Well, I mean, that's an interesting point because, I mean, you know, I, I would sort of be uncomfortable about, you know, giving all of my medical data that's, you know, help with my with, with, with my doctor to my organisation. I think actually that's none of their business if I go home and drink a bottle of scotch every night, providing I'm a high performer in the office every day. Does it? Is it really any of their business? Well, absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's... A, I don't, uh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's completely your business. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it is It is a sort of partly a cultural thing. I mean, I, th I think there are some countries, Austria, for example, um, if you're an employer, you're not allowed to know... Um, um, 
why an employee is off sick. Mm. Um, you know, that information is, is kept to them. Um, and you're also not allowed to know um, how long they're going to be away from um, because of medical confidentiality, and unless they're prepared to tell you. That makes it quite hard to manage sort of vocational rehabilitation and, you know, adjustments when you come back to work and so on. Um, whereas in other parts of the world, you know, those sort of things are relatively, um, you know, simple and straightforward. So I think there are both ethical and cultural issues. I suppose if you believe that your employer has your best interests at heart and they have you know, health-related programs that are really going to support you, particularly, for example, if you want to make behavioural change to your lifestyle, your diet, your exercise, your nutrition, your smoking and so on, um, then it's a sort of pact, isn't it? It's a deal you do with your employer that you'll get support, um, mm. but they're not going to make judgments about you or share your information. Okay. So if you, if you sort of stripped all this back and you said, okay, right, from, from day one, um, you know, we're going to put, uh, we're concerned about our employees' well-being, we're going to put some, put, you know, put some measures in place and we're going to think about this and design a programme and design the whole messaging around it. What would you, if if you could start from 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 scratch, what would you tell an organisation to do? Um, well, goodness, uh, um, I mean, I, if I was going just from what the evidence says, hmm. um, then I wouldn't be going down the route of having lots of fancy eye catching gizmos mm-hmm. um, or interventions that that make me look good but really don't make much impact. Um, and the, the uncomfortable truth is that most of the things that make a difference are systemic. They're to do with the way the organization is managed, its culture, the quality of line management, um, the amount of control and autonomy people have in their jobs. And most crucially, the balance between the demands of, on people in their jobs and the resources they have available to them. And that's usually psychological resources. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about uh, designing jobs well, training managers to be aware of the contribution they make to people's well-being and flourishing at work and so on. And that all sounds very woolly because it's much easier for me to say, well, you should definitely have more fruit in the canteen and, and so on. Um, or you should make sure that people are doing regular exercise. Um, you know, it, it's not as simple as that, unfortunately. Um, and I think that it comes down to partly a state of mind, partly about um, leadership, recognising that they have to go beyond their legal duty of care to keep people safe, not just about people going home safely every day. Um, and it's creating a work environment where people feel able to give the uh, best of themselves and also that they know that they're going to be able to be fulfilled in what they do. Mm. Um, and I think I see a, a direct sort of golden triangle between well-being, uh, performance and things like retention and commitment and so on of people to the organisation. Mm. And they're massively powerful things in combination. And mm. I think that's definitely worth bearing in mind. So I will be making sure that all the things you're trying to do to maximise performance and retention and attraction and commitment are working because they also affect people's well-being at work. Mm. And do you think that the pandemic was a bit of a tipping point then, that actually we've all now started to go back to the office? You know, hybrid working seems to be, you know, in place for, for, for millions of people up and down the, up and down the country. Um, you know, sort of three days in the office or three days at home or whatever it is. Do you think that in itself will help contribute to people feeling better about their work? Um, I think what's happened, we've been doing, we've been tracking using surveys, um, people across a range of sectors since the beginning of the first lockdown in March 2020. We saw 
quite a few significant issues around things like musculoskeletal health and pain and sleep and fatigue and mental health and so on, particularly in the first few months. Gradually, most of those things have got better. I think sleep and fatigue actually haven't mm. very much. Um, but what it's also shown is that um, you know many of the things that some managers said could never be done, you know, allowing so many people to work remotely, for example, are possible. Mm. And actually, people can be as productive, if not more productive. Um, obviously, we've had to be a lot more alert to those people, perhaps with an elevated risk of isolation. Mm those people who, you know, whose mental health has not improved um, since the lockdown started. Um, and I, what I see happening, and we have data to support this, is that more and more organisations are basically doing sort of almost individual deals with employees to say, well, what's the pattern of work that suits you best? Are there certain tasks in your job that are best done at home or remotely? Mm. Uh, or are there certain tasks that aren't time dependent? Mm. So they're, like, they're being a lot more permissive than they ever would be even three years ago. And I think ultimately that sort of sovereignty people have over their working time and the working place will, in the long term, be very beneficial to people's well-being. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's very interesting. So if you're giving, you're giving, you know, you're having a conversation now then with 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 your employees about the work that they do and how they would like to do that piece of work. And as you say, that is giving them a certain amount of sovereignty, isn't it, over their day and, and autonomy mm. and decision-making, which, as you say, goes back to the very basic, the heart of all of this in a way, is that actually if you allow people to do the work in the way they would like to do it, that actually the outcome is more positive. Is that right? Um, it is. I mean, go back to my NHS example I gave you a mm. few minutes ago. I mean... Um, you shouldn't get the wrong end of the stick. This is just about creating a, a job or a configuration of a job that benefits only the job holder. In the NHS example, you know, there, there was a real struggle to balance the needs for delivering high levels of quality care mm. for patients, but also making sure that the job that the person was doing was still doable. It wasn't so intense that they were inevitably going to fall over. Mm. Um, and the, the autonomy that the person I spoke to got meant that she was able to make really good clinical judgments about what's in the best interest of the patients. Mm. And as a byproduct of that, she was thriving in the job mm. and wasn't you know, suffering from, um, from terrible workload problems or deadline problems. Mm. So it's that mutuality of benefit that I think we've got to search for. It's a sweet spot that we've got to search for in this. Okay. And in terms of, I mean, it, it, it sounds like then if, if you're going to sort of consider your employees' well-being and everything else, that actually this needs to come from the leadership, this needs to come from the very top. It's not something you can just sort of add on to HR's workload and say, well, actually to the HR director or the people director, do you know what, you can do that. No, I mean, I think the, certainly our research um, during lockdown on people's well-being has shown how pivotal the role of the line manager is yeah. uh, in all this. Most of them, to be honest, have stepped up really well. Yeah. Um, and you know, they've adapted. Um, it's not been easy for them, um, but we found many of them have you know, done really well and have learned a lot about letting go, but also providing clarity, keeping in regular contact. We found that if you had more regular contact with your manager, your mental health was a lot better. Um, so I, I think that line managers are key here. They need to be helped by um, two groups, the HR profession. And you know, I think there do remain questions about what the role of HR is in you know, a newly configured you know, hybrid working organization sure. and the other group i would say are really important is occupational health um and i suppose my worry here is that um although it's not ex exclusively the case in many organizations um particularly those who are outsourcing occupational health 
what they're essentially buying in is the patching people up, getting them back to work as soon as possible, bit the of triage. services. Mm. But they're not really getting them to do the risk assessment, the prevention, um, the stuff that enables you to highlight that someone, you know, a job may be inherently open to an elevated level of work stress uh, and doing something about it before people get ill. Um, and that is the part that sometimes goes missing. And so it's actually a, a, a nice partnership between line managers, HR and occupational health. It should allow you to spot the early warning signs that someone's job demands are going to be overwhelming their resources to cope. Hmm. Okay. And it's extraordinary that it comes back to the age old sort of adage that actually people don't leave their job, they leave their manager, ultimately. Would you say that's true? Uh, I think it is true. I think, um, and if we're quoting age-old adages, I would also quote um, Hertzberg, Frederick Hertzberg, who said, if you want people to do a good job, give them a good job to do. Um, And this is about job quality. You know, it's about giving people autonomy and discretion, social support and so on, and they will do a good job for you. And a really positive byproduct is they'll be well. Stephen Bevan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to That Wellbeing at Work show. To listen to more episodes and to find out more on how Body Boost can drive engagement in your wellbeing programmes, go to our website or email us on info at bodyboost.co.uk.